Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for October 19th, 2018. On today's episode, we're going to answer reader emails in the mailbag. This is Slash Film Editor-in-Chief Peter Soretta. Joining me on today's podcast is Slash Film Managing Editor Jacob Paul. Hello, hello. Senior writer Ben Pearson. Hey, what's going on? Writers Huai Tran Bui. Hey, everyone. And Chris Evangelista. Hello. Uh, HT, you just got off the phone was it the phone call interview that you were doing yes it was a phone call interview with mamaru husoda and how did that go because i think people might be interesting and interested in this because you have to like not only see i hate telephone interviews because there's kind of like this uh you know it's like trying to do an interview with a gigantic wall in between you and uh you know you can't read facial expressions you can't read body language so there's kind of like this divide of some sort but i would imagine it's even worse with the translator in between you yeah it was the first time i've had an experience of doing an interview through a translator. Uh, Mamoru Hosoda, for those who don't know, is a Japanese anime director. He was behind films such as The Girl Who Left Through Time, one of my all-time favorites, as well as The Boy and the Beast and Summer Wars. So um, this is I was interviewing him for his newest film, Mirai, and I had to do it through a translator who was very sweet and um, did her best with some of my questions that I realized didn't really work well with a person... I was going through a translator because I tend to try to load my questions with some like, you know, like levels be like, oh, go lead into it. If you're in a conversation, you try to lead into it. But with a translator, you tra- you have to go with the most direct option you have. So you can't say, oh, I really liked how, what you did with this scene and what, how it was different from the scene that you did before, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but it just confuses, it just gets confusing when it's and literally lost in translation in this sense. So that was a really interesting experience for me. Um, and having that kind of person, uh, you have to kind of get a rapport with both the <laughs> the the director and the the translator in a sense. And then like, yeah, again, like through the, the phone, it, it's even worse. You just kind of feel like you're 
in this very weird three-way call. And um, <laughs> I'm, I'm not a fan of phone interviews either, but that's kind of inevitably, inevitably what I always end up doing because I'm in D.C. I'm not near any um, L.A. or and New York things. So I uh, tend to do a lot of these, and I still don't get used to it. Yeah, and I, I think you're also a very personable person, and it's very hard for personality to translate through a translator. Oh, definitely. It's kind of like, especially with in like with Japanese culture too. It's you have to think about um, like that cultural differences sometimes too, which is hard to really maintain. Like think of keep in regard when you're just asking questions about a movie. So it was weird, but it was it was a really cool experience because I really admire uh, his work. So it was. I think it was a good interview in the end. I would like to share a quick story that I think you guys will appreciate. A friend of mine did a Q&A for the film The Tribe from a few years ago, which is a very bleak film with no spoken dialogue told entirely through uh, unsubtitled sign language. And the movie is totally readable. You can, like, watch it and understand what's going on. But the Draft House uh, hosted a a screening of it for the local school for the deaf. So it was a bunch of deaf students and their um, often not deaf parents and family in the theater. So he had to do a Q&A with the filmmakers uh, with a sign language translator. And and the idea of all the nuance that HG is discussing having to be broken down in the sign language made for one of the strangest Q&As I think maybe <laughs> to ever happen at any movie theater. Have you personally done any interviews through a translator, Jacob? Yeah, uh, the most memorable one was uh, a few years ago there was two Palestinian filmmakers who made a short film uh, put on the internet, I believe, and they were invited to come screen it in Austin. And it, and there was, and the whole whole gist of it was, hey, here's filmmakers, artists from the Gaza Strip, who are you know <laughs> an area that's not always showcased for filmmakers. And it was, it was a good short. They made it, you know, for no money in a, in a very dangerous area. And I remember the interview being memorable because they seemed very, very intense when they spoke, and in their language, me not being able to understand what they were saying. Uh, they always seemed very angry at me until the translation came through and they were, the translation was super friendly and complimentary. Uh, so and I, I realized, oh, this is uh, me learning a very valuable lesson about cultural divides, which is just because a person speaking their language does not mean you, you can easily read their emotions or their intent. So it was, it was, it was a very important learning experience for me, actually. I, I love in a translated interview where, where, where you're hearing the interviewee like answer in their native language and it sounds like you know positive and happy and then the the translator it, it like ends up being like this sad story or something like it's just like <laughs> totally different than what you expected it to be okay anyways we should get into the mailbag uh let's start with a fun one chris from ohio writes in what are your plans for halloween so uh let's start with uh ben what are your halloween plans uh, I am going to a baby shower for a friend of mine who is having like a they're throwing like a baby shower slash costume party and it's on the 27th. So I think that's like the Saturday before Halloween. Um, I don't want to say what my costume is yet because I think I'm going to try to finalize it this weekend, but I'll probably I'll talk about it on the mailbag uh, or I'm sorry, the uh, the water cooler the Monday after I go to that just to make sure that I don't uh <laughs> screw things up I, i'm really i'm i have high hopes for my costume i'll tease that and it's movie related so um we'll see we'll see what happens there yeah um ht what, what are you planning on doing for hollow's eve 
so the weekend of before Halloween, I'm actually going up to New York to uh, go to my friend's housewarming party, which sounds like a far way to, a way to go for Halloween. But um, I I guess this is a good place as good enough place to announce it but I'm I'm going to be moving to New York soon and I'm going to be use that using that weekend to look at apartments and uh settle things and everything so I'm going to also use that chance to go to a party and I have a costume uh no surprise for anyone here who's been listening but it's Doctor Who it's the 13th Doctor I've already already like fought all the, the elements and I I don't have the new screwdriver I'm going to use my old 11th doctor screwdriver which wait, yes wait I when own. you say you bought the elements like are you buying like actual doctor who halloween costume elements or are you like putting it together yourself it's like the low budget version so I, I the only thing I got really bought was like the t-shirt and um suspenders but I already have several other other things I have a, a jacket as well that looks kind of similar to what she wears um and so it's kind of it's it's a low budget version of the Thirteenth Doctor, but hopefully it'll be recognizable. And especially because of the T-shirt, which is like a just a plain T-shirt with like a rainbow on the chest. Um, and I have the old screwdriver, but it should be fine. Uh, so I'm I'm excited to wear that and or potentially use a flower crown that I bought at the Renaissance Festival a few a week ago, and um, maybe use that to cosplay as Emma from Sharp Objects. But that's a a backup one because that would be kind of cold that I'd have to wear a nightdress. So that's my plans. It's very exciting. I, I'm finding it very hard. Um, I, I am a bigger person. I'm finding it very hard to find a Halloween costume that one fits me and two is something I'd want to wear. <laughs> like I, I have, I have no problem finding something that fits me, but it's not like a, in terms of off the shelf. I'm not a person that likes to, like, you know, cause, you know, create, like, put the effort in. Yeah, I, I basically don't want to put the effort in <laughs> to create my own costume. Um, so I have a costume on the way. Uh, I, I got a Doc Brown costume from Back to the Future 1. So it's, like, him in the radiation outfit. Uh, and I think that's pre- pretty easy and probably fits me because Back to the Future is my favorite uh, film. And I'm, I'm probably going to be wearing that to uh, – we live in West Hollywood, which has one of the biggest Halloween parties uh, in in the United States, at least. Um, it basically takes over, like, this one-and-a-half-mile stretch of the main road, Santa Monica Boulevard, and uh, we're going to be attending that. And also, uh, the Magic Castle, every week for Halloween, has, like uh, – Halloween week is like 10 days instead of seven. And they basically do a, like a themed event. Uh, last year was an alien invasion. This year they're doing a uh, murder mansion. So it's like a, a murder mystery kind of thing. And they have like actors roaming the, the castle and it's going to be kind of like a real life clue, I think. Um, so, so I will be doc Brown at both of those things. Um, but uh, Jacob, what are your plans? I am hitting up a few local haunted houses, uh, as I do every year. I'll talk more in detail about them in the next water cooler episode. Uh, but tonight I'm doing House of Torment, which is the big uh, haunted house in Austin. The one that's so popular that there really isn't a, there aren't really many others in the immediate city. And it's sort of uh, it's multi-million dollar uh, installation, uh, three separate houses, has the 
uh, quality and special effects and makeup of you know Universal Studios Horror Nights. It's a very big thing. I've, I've gone every year for years. It's extremely polished, very well rehearsed, uh, run like a clock, very fun. Uh, but I'm actually more excited about uh, Scream Hollow, which is where I'm going tomorrow. And it's out in Bastrop, which is about 45 minutes uh, from Austin. Out literally where they filmed Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Like, the gas station <laughs> scenes were filmed a few minutes from where this, ha- from where this uh, haunted house is. And it's on a bunch of acreage out in the middle of the country where there are no street lights and uh, dirt country roads get you there. And it's four separate houses. It's a complex with a restaurant and a gift shop and a bar. And there's people wandering around, terrifying you. And it is not as polished or as slick as House of Torment. It's clearly made uh, with a lot more uh, spirit and um, hope than than House of Torment is. Uh, but the actors have a lot more freedom. Everything's almost entirely outdoors. So you're in the woods with no like artificial light. It is just really terrifying and special. But I'll, I'll have more details about what's new this year on Monday. So is this more of like a homegrown thing, kind of like like we saw in the documentary The American Scream? Uh, yeah, it's, it's it's bigger than those in The American Scream. Like, it's not in somebody's backyard. It's very much its own business. It has a website running for a few years. It has a payroll for the actors. They have they train the actors. You know, it's, it's not like a super low-budget thing. It's, you know, not as Hollywood as House of Torment is. Uh, but yeah, it, it feels very much a, like a passion project um, pulled off extremely well as opposed to like a very slick operation. I think we mentioned this last year on the podcast, but I would highly recommend anybody who hasn't seen American Scream to check it out. It's from the director and producers of Best Sports Movie, and it kind of profiles a bunch of uh, homegrown haunted houses uh, that uh, take place, I think, in New England somewhere. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think that's probably available uh, to rent on, like, iTunes and Amazon. Um, but uh, who have we not to get into? Oh, Chris. What are your plans for Halloween? Uh, well, next weekend I'm going away with my wife because uh, it's our wedding anniversary. We got married on uh, October 29th because – you know, we're, we're both fans of Halloween as a holiday, so we, we deliberately, you. yes, <laughs> we deliberately, we deliberately set up our wedding to be right around Halloween, and so we're going away for like just a weekend, and then on Halloween itself, I don't really, I just basically watch as many scary movies as I possibly can. That's that's my annual tradition. Is there a TV network that does like? You know how every Christmas there's like 24 hours of a Christmas story? Is there a TV network that does something like that for Halloween? I mean, I guess like the those places that play like Hocus Pocus and stuff like that, but I'm, that's not really that's not what I thing. want. Yeah. I mean, there's like, you know, there's Shudder, which is not a TV channel. It's a yeah. streaming service that's like as close as I can think of. Someone should get the rights to all the Halloween movies and then just do 24 hours of Halloween on Halloween. AMC just recently played, I think, like almost oh, the whole yeah. franchise. Yeah, but yeah. AMC used to do a thing every uh, October where they would do uh, 30 days of like old school 30s through 60s horror movies. Like that's where I first discovered Universal Monsters and like William Castle movies. And they, they did it for years and years. But then AMC stopped being a movie network, started being a TV network. But I, I still miss those days. But the, I remember vividly sitting down for hours and hours and hours and watching nothing but old school horror movies on AMC. Yes. Um, okay, let's move on to our next question. Uh, I'll try to answer this the best I can. Uh, Britton from Louisville, Kentucky, writes in, what's the difference between a producer and an executive producer? 
do they both get Best Picture Oscars if their movie wins? Uh, from what I understand, having written about this uh, industry for over 10 years, this is what I understand of the difference between producer and executive producer. And I'll put some details in the show notes, but uh, executive producer is basically the top executive of operations of the film, while the producer is the manager of the operations. So what that means is the executive producer prepares the budget and acquires the investors, which is not typically true anymore, but uh, it's yeah, you know, whatever. Uh, and the producer makes sure how to use the budget uh, to accomplish, you know, the film. The producer hires the people uh, with the right talents and skills for the movie, whereas the uh, producer himself is hired by the executive producer. So for the most part, the executive producer has very little to do with the hiring process aside from hiring the producer. Uh, the producer is on set for the entire production, although some films I've seen have like multiple producers, like so they'll have creative producers and technical producers. Um, and uh, the executive producer will come and visit from time to time, not usually on set. And uh, they're usually more in an advisory capacity, overseeing the scripts and the marketing. And uh, the the producer is always eligible for the awards from Hollywood. On the other hand, uh, the executive producer is not eligible for awards. Uh, and obviously, I think a lot of people know this, but executive producers sometimes more or less just a credit that someone gets uh, for a variety of reasons, maybe being responsible for the the production in some significant way. Um, do any of you guys have any uh, differences I may have missed in what what's the difference between a producer and an executive producer on a film? I think you get the, the bulk of it. The one thing I will note, though, is executive producer means different things for television. <laughs> so yeah. Executive producer in TV tends to be the creative hands-on type. Uh, and so... What Peter said is very comprehensive for film, but once you start branching out into small screen, it's a completely different thing. For sure. Uh, th that's usually the showrunner, right? It's the yeah, usually. Yeah, okay. Um, let's move on to Damon P. from St. Louis, Missouri. Writes in, uh, he knows that a lot of our team reads books, and uh, he wants to know if we believe that breaking up a film into multiple parts like uh, Deathly Hollows or Mockingjay to make the book more, uh, the movie more complete, like the book is a good thing. Um, so many times we hear the book is better. Why is that? Is that because the movies are limited by time to incorporate additional uh, plot points or anything like that? Uh, what do you guys think? Uh, I'm, I'm guessing the person who reads the most books here is who Jacob, maybe. I imagine me or HT, uh, but I'll chime in real quick, then I'll, I'll pass the baton to her since I've been talking too much. Uh, but I think that the splitting uh, a book into two movies has never been a creative decision. I don't believe anybody who says that. I think it's always been a financial decision to make more money because uh, Duffy Hollows and Mockingjay are books that do not demand in two movies. I, I like both books. And I like both movies or all, all four movies even, uh, but there's nothing in that narrative that demands those additional hours. Um, I think that both of them could be improved even if they were sharper, um, more critical adaptations, one that knew what to pick and choose and knew what was important. I think a better adaptation is one that um, 
isolates the feeling of a book or isolates what's important and reconstructs it into a film rather than trying to laboriously recreate that feeling. Because I think that a book and a movie are so different things that trying to just say, we need more time to do more events is not as good as let's find a brisker way to recapture that feeling in a new medium. But what do you think, H.D.? I actually agree with most of what you said, except for the splitting of the Deathly Hallows. Well, Mockingjay was definitely a, a very financial decision. Deathly Hallows actually provided a good splitting point in which uh, you they gave kind of two very different films um, out of this very gigantic, very dense book. And I will say Deathly Hallows Part 1 is my favorite book because, a favorite movie, sorry, because it is so, um, like, limited in that sense to, to this one adventure and this one story that we're telling. Um, so I think that actually works and that kind of felt like it came from both financial and creative decision, but anything that came after that, such as Mockingjay, the Hobbit trilogy, which was the, like the dumbest splitting of, of a book ever, um, definitely felt more financial than anything. And as for that common um, phrase, the book is better than the movie, I don't fully believe that either. I think that people who who like to spout that off often are um, upholding the movie to different standards than the, what they should. They are wanting to see their favorite parts of a book adapted and thus want that laborious, that stilted adaptation to take place, which don't doesn't suit movie making at all. It's something that is a very different medium. Um, it's some, if you want something that's closer to that feeling of the book or whatever you um, wanted to see from a book adaptation, often a miniseries is better. And that also is a very different medium than film as well. I, I kind of wish that they're like filmmakers. I know that the, this does not make sense, but I wish filmmakers were given the room kind of like Peter Jackson was given on the original Lord of the Rings films to shoot a lot more of the book and include it in a director's cut or an ultimate cut later on. Like I would have loved to have seen more scenes in the Harry Potter films, you know, added back into the, the movies. Uh, I mean, I guess, I guess as a screenwriter, you have to, you know, cut it down to the, the story that you want to present on screen. But uh, I, I also see that Hollywood can, Hollywood can make money by these, you know, uh, ultimate cut re-releases and home video. Uh, ben, what, what are your thoughts on uh, adapting books to, to movies? I, I mean, I kind of am of the opinion that the, the reason behind why a lot of people think the book is better is just as simple as sometimes the way that you imagine things does not align with the way that things actually appear, you know, in, in the actual film adaptations. Like we've seen this so many times, especially in fandom when like fan theories uh, pop up and people just become obsessed with building out the movie in their mind. And then when the actual movie comes out and they discover that those fan theories were just nonsense and garbage and it doesn't align. The final movie doesn't align with that. People get really angry. So I think that's, there's like some sort of underlying thing there that is the same. Uh, it's linked to that book is better concept. Chris, I know you also read a bunch. Do you think splitting, you know, making a longer movie will translate into a better adaptation? Uh, I mean, a longer movie, if it was one movie, yes, but I don't, you know, the the splitting into two movies thing, like Jacob well, said, is... You is, are a huge fan of Stephen King, and there is this popular adaptation of It that uh, has taken that route. 
I mean, yeah, I guess there are exceptions to the rule, but like that book really is like two distinct stories. Like that really does work as, you know, two big stories. But if it's something that's written and it's like one, you know, linear tale, uh, I think splitting that is really just for the sake of, uh, you know, making more money, getting more films out of an idea. By the way, it only occurred to me now, do you think after they come out with It Chapter 2, do you think they'll re-edit both of the movies together so that they intercut uh, in the way that the book does and then re-release an ultimate long movie? I don't think they will. I, I'm sure someone online will do that because that seems to happen a lot. I don't think Warner Brothers will do that. It would be cool if they did, but I don't think they would. I don't know. Maybe there's money in it. But, uh, okay, let's move on to uh, Leanne R., who I think has written in, in the past from Los Angeles. Uh, she writes in that uh, she's wondering what the best films directed and starring the same person. Uh, she uses examples like Tarantino and Mel Gibson. Uh, I, I don't know. I think when discussing this, we probably should draw a line between cameos like Alfred Hitchcock and Tarantino and, uh, you know, M. Night, those kind of things where it's a, a smaller role or a cameo um, and, you know, more of a starring role. I, I'll start this off with um, I've really been impressed with ben, what Ben Affleck has done, uh, especially with The Town and Argo, although I do feel like. I would like to see him do more movies, uh, directing more movies that he's not in. Like, I, I really do think that Gone Baby Gone might be his best film that he's directed so far. Uh, HD, what about you? Well, I have to go with the first, the classic one, Citizen Kane, which is directed by and starring Orson Welles. Um, it, there's been enough said about Citizen Kane. It's a, a testament testament to filmmaking it's a landmark film orson wells is um it was his feature debut too so that was a really just phenomenal um achievement on his part and he gives a really nuanced performance as the titular citizen kane so that's a great one um another one is another one is life is beautiful uh directed by and starring roberto benini it's a just tragic and also surprisingly lighthearted film about uh, World War II and uh, concentration camps. It's a really gorgeous movie. Let's go to Chris. Citizen Kane obviously is a big one, so I didn't add that to my list, but um, Unforgiven is a great one from Clint Eastwood. I think that's actually the only Clint Eastwood directed movie I really like because he's gotten very uh, lazy in his later years. Like He has a very uh, one and done mentality where he does one take of everything and that's good enough for him. And it shows, uh, you know, I know he still has fans, but I, I haven't liked really any film he's directed since Unforgiven, which is great. Um, uh, another is a uh, Dick Tracy, which I love the, the, the Warren Beatty movie, which he's in and he directed and uh, do the right thing where Spike Lee, he's not the main character in that, but he has a very, he has a pretty big role yeah. in that. And, uh, you know, um, a more recent one is A Star is Born. I'm really impressed with that movie, especially for it being Bradley Cooper's, uh, you know, directorial debut. And he's almost in every single scene, which is, you know, a pretty big deal. So uh, I'll add that one to the mix, too. Jacob, you also had Citizen Kane on your list. 
Uh, yeah, I, have, I actually have uh, Citizen Kane and Unforgiven on my list. I'll chime in real quick on those. Uh, Citizen Kane is just a brilliant movie in every way. I, I don't need to say that because everybody knows it, uh, hopefully. Uh, but um, so many um, performances that are as grand and bizarre and as pushing as that one is um, are often the result of an actor having a director to sort of catch him as he falls backwards because uh, he's making so many big choices that should not work and do work. So the idea that Orson Welles had the confidence to direct himself in that performance without having somebody to have his back is astonishing to me. And also Unforgiven uh, is the kind of movie that can only be made by a filmmaker slash star who really understands himself and his persona. That movie is a demythologizing of the West and the, the Western, but also of Clint Eastwood himself. So once you really take into account that it's Clint Eastwood directing himself as a version of a character he's played before, you start to really understand uh, it's Clint Eastwood really evaluating himself and his career and his life so far, and that makes it so much more fascinating. Is, is that... You had some other films as well, right? Oh, um, yeah, I'll just... Uh, do a quick shout out to uh, Buster Keaton, Charlie Chaplin, the old silent comedian stars from the uh, first uh, early years of cinema who would do these insane stunts and wacky comedy and put themselves in Jackie Chan levels of danger with even fewer safety measures while directing, while starring and while making all their movies happen. Um, I feel like this is from an era where directors were really seen as more of workmen than they were as artists, even though they were artists. And to understand that uh, Buster Keaton was directing himself in scenes in movies like The General, where he's hanging off of a train and risking life for laughs is fascinating and really makes you um, consider uh, how hard a directing is when you're not dangling off a train and almost dying. Yeah. Uh, ben, let's move on to you. What, what, what are some films directed by uh, or yeah, directed by people starring in them? Yeah, I would give a shout out to some of Clint Eastwood's earlier movies, uh, The Outlaw Josie Wales and High Plains Drifter in particular. I think uh, Pale Rider is another one. I don't like that one quite as much. But um, yeah, in addition to Unforgiven, I think those are worth uh, are worth mentioning for anybody who is looking for really solid performances from directors. Um, and also A Quiet Place, uh, John Krasinski's movie from earlier this year. It sort of seems insane that that movie came out this year because so much has happened since then. But um, I think he delivers in particular delivers a really, really great performance performance in that movie um and again as being like a uh, i mean it's not quite his directorial debut but it sort of feels like it um and then the rocky sequels uh, i know that stallone didn't direct the first film but he directed most of the sequels and those are really i mean <laughs> entertaining compelling sports movies um some of them are a little bit more laughable than others i think but he he sort of runs the gamut there between uh some pitfalls like rocky five i think is probably one of the worst there but rocky balboa is really great and i i have big love for rocky two three and four as well so um yeah i gotta give uh, stallone a shout out too i feel kind of stupid because i only picked one filmmaker because i thought we we're each picking one filmmaker and you guys picked so many uh great movies but i think you said most of the ones that i would have said if i had a list uh let's move on to our last question uh because we are running out of time but um 
This question has to do with, uh, this is from Drew from Houston, Texas, and he writes in, I really enjoyed the conversation about becoming a film writer. I had another question about taking that process one step further for those on the site who write reviews. What is your process? An outline before diving into the review. Does Chris take notes while reviewing TV shows or Blu-rays before writing his reviews? Uh, just curious to hear more about the process. Uh, I'll start things off and say that I, uh, if I am writing a review, like if I'm going to, uh, generally I, I do most of my reviews at like Sundance or something like that. I, I usually have a moleskin notebook that I take notes throughout the, uh, the movie and, uh, I am really bad at it. So my notes like overlap and like, you know, go all over the, and they're scribbles. And literally if I looked at the notebook a day later, I probably couldn't decipher 60% of it. But uh, coming out of the movie and writing the review that day, uh, even the, the like, even if I'm not, uh, I'm not good. Like, I, a lot of things come up to me during the movie. And, I, and by the time I, I get so invested and so into it that I forget some of these thoughts I have. And if I didn't write them down, I would forget some of the stuff. And I think it's even the process of me scribbling the thing down it might not even be me being able to decipher that scribble later but the fact that i made an effort to write it down i think put like you know burns it into my brain so when i do write the review i have like that kind of note uh you know more on the surface uh chris you do a lot of reviews for us uh what about you how is what is your process Oh uh, yeah, I definitely take notes no matter what I'm watching. If it's you know if I'm in a theater, I, I bring a notebook. If I'm at home, I'll tend to take notes on my phone in like the, the note app because it's easier to read because you know my, my handwriting is also a mess. But oh, that, yeah. that, that's another thing I do when I come out of a theater, uh, even for like uh, the water cooler segments that we do. When I come out of the theater, I just open my notes app and I like vomit like through words into the notes app of like, just like little notes that like, I want to remember for when, you know, it comes up on the air. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's always good to take notes, especially um, if you're doing like multiple things, like if you're at a festival, it helps to take notes. Like, you know, when I was at TIFF this year, I saw like four or five movies a day. And if I didn't take notes, they would have all, you know, blended together, but it's definitely helpful, but they don't have to be, for me, at least, they don't really have to be detailed notes. Like if sometimes I just write a word down and that'll be enough to trigger my memory of what I wanted to say. I do remember uh, hearing Roger Ebert talk about his process and he used to have like this binder that on one side had like these little note cards and on the other it had like just a pocket. So whenever he had a thought that he wanted to write down, this is actually pretty smart, it's something I probably should do because my, you know, like I said, mine just go all into each other like you know <laughs> deformed tetris pieces it's like a disaster uh what he would do is take out one of the note pa- note cards write the thought down on the note card and then put it into the pocket so that later you know he has all these you know uh individual uh notes uh J- jacob what what is your process like uh, I'm actually the exact opposite of you two. I take zero notes, and my reasoning is that if I can't remember it, and if it doesn't bother me, uh, a few hours later when writing the review, it's not worth putting in the review. I always try to um, sit down and, very quietly and think, and think about 
what's echoing through me now? What what still bothers me? What still delights me? And I go from there. I don't outline. I tend to uh, start from start with the beginning, write it all the way through, and then do a second draft where I give a little more structure. Uh, I don't recommend not taking notes because I think most people do. Um, I'm very, it's very rare for people in my profession to not take notes. Uh, but for me, it that's what has worked for me over the years. See, my notes won't even just be criticisms or positive. It might be like a plot point that I know I want to address, or maybe it's, you know, something that came to me during the movie, a clever way to describe something or compare something to something. And, uh, yeah. So, uh, Ben, how about you? I'm pretty much the same as you, Peter. I take notes uh, pretty much in every movie that I go to, and I write down a lot of the same stuff. I'll write down, like, thematic things that I think about that I, I might forget later because a lot of times as you're watching a movie, I'll have a thought like, oh, that connects back to something that happened before, but it's still early in the movie, so I don't know if that's ultimately what the film is trying to say, but that's, that's a lot of the kind of stuff that I write. Um, and I, I write a ton of plot points as well because – a lot of times for the movies that we're seeing, we're seeing them so early that full detailed plot synopses are not available online anywhere else yet. So I, I really write a ton of plot stuff down just to make sure I have the order right of when things happen. And that will trigger, you know, the, the smaller moments. I'll, I'll write down a lot of um, lines of dialogue, things that jump out at me or um yeah, just, you know, little comparisons or, or um, references that I think might be made to other movies. Um, but, yeah, it, it's super helpful for me. Um, and in terms of, like, the actual writing, I tend to write the whole thing all the way through from the beginning. I know a lot of people uh, – or I've heard a lot of people talk about how they – can't write the intro and the outro until after the whole rest of the thing is done. And that's sort of a, I mean, I can understand that, but I, I just try, I find it easier for me to just start at the beginning and go all the way through. So um, that's my process. Yeah, you do make a good point with all these like very early film festival films. They usually have a, like a little blurb written by the programmer that sometimes doesn't tell you much at all about the film. And, uh, you know, later in when a, f a film's released, I'm not sure if people out there listening to this know this, but uh, usually we'll get access to press notes, which is like, you know, somewhere between five to 30 pages written about the film, giving you some insight into the making of the film, but also giving you a plot synopsis to uh, kind of work off of. So, yeah, it, it is at these film festivals. I, I am like writing a bunch of notes on like, you know, the plot notes that I want to address in my uh, recap of what, what, what happens in, in the movie. And it's actually kind of funny because it, it's kind of notorious that if you read a lot of these like film festival reviews later when the movie comes to release, there are a lot of discrepancies. Uh, and I'm not talking about just mine, but even like famous uh, reviewers have uh, gotten things wrong. Well, it's interesting because like, yeah, I love reading Roger Ebert's reviews, but you know, Roger Ebert, he did the, he did the bulk of his reviewing before there was internet. So if you go back and read a lot of his reviews, there's a lot of like, times where he gets things really wrong because there was no way for him to like really look it up. Like I remember specifically the, the review he wrote for Halloween three season of the witch. He mistakenly thought there was a scene where someone was doing an autopsy on Michael Myers, even though Michael Myers, we all know is famously not in Halloween three, but that's in his <laughs> Halloween three review because he had no way of really confirming it back then. <laughs> um, HT, how about you? What is your process? 
Yeah, I'm a note taker like you guys. When I go to see a movie and I am reviewing it, I tend to take a notebook in and jot down just my thoughts. Uh, sometimes lines of dialogue like Ben as well in case I want to go back to it or use it in my review. If I have a thought of how I want to uh, start, my, sometimes I have a thought of like, how I want to word something and I like I already have my lead then I just like write that down and it helps me get started uh, with the review later on and um, at home as well I tend to use my notes app the note we're we're the only ones who use the notes app as it's supposed to be used unlike celebrities who use it for like statements and stuff <laughs> yeah. but um, yeah so I I'm a big note taker just mostly the kind of thoughts that come to me when I'm watching a movie or TV show and um, as for writing a review I'm also the um, start to finish person. Uh, sometimes if I'm stuck, I will skip my lead, but I tend to like using my lead as a jumping off point as the kind of way to find like what I want to say, like my thesis in a way. Uh, but sometimes in longer like essays, I do like little outlines um, by subheads and th things to kind of divide my thoughts, uh, which help me order things around. Yeah, I like to do subheads. I also, while I'm watching a film, and it seems it sounds like I'm the only one here that does this, but I'm always trying to figure out what like the review headline is. Like, I'm I'm trying to figure it, and that helps inform uh, my entire structure of the review because, especially at a film festival, and I, I know we've talked about this when covering film festivals as a staff, but, uh, you know, these are films that people don't know about. There hasn't been uh, trailers for most of these films. There haven't been posters or even photos sometimes. So you got to find an angle that will get people to care if it's a movie that we're writing about and should be on people's radar. So, I mean, that could be in the form of comparing it to another film that people like or know of it could be uh you know finding you know what what is the essence of this thing that i want people to, to get people interested in and i usually am able to scribble something down during the movie that is that that helps like kind of inform my my whole review but it sounds like you guys don't um you come to that later while you're writing the review yeah headlines probably the last thing that i think of and i'm I'm really hit or miss when it comes to headlines. I'm not as good as as you are about finding that that one angle that people care about. I think you have more practice with SEO and everything too. Well, it's not it's not SEO. It's more of like, you know, I I need to get people to care about this. Like we just spent two hours watching it. I spent an hour going to the theater, hour coming back. You know, a, a couple hours writing the, you know, an hour writing this, whatever. You know, I want people to actually care about what I wrote. <laughs> and I, if this movie's good, I want people to actually care about the movie. So I need to find some way to get them to care. Uh, ben, Chris, Jacob, uh, do you guys, you come to that later or? Oh, uh, my, my thought is very brief, uh, which is uh, as the managing editor, I've rewritten a lot of headlines. So I feel like once I've read your review, I sometimes have a, a better idea of what you're trying to say than maybe you do. Uh, so I think headlines written by somebody else who's read your work are sometimes better than your own headlines, since that's why editors exist. But go on, Chris, please. No, yeah, I always come to the headline usually last. Unless, unless it's like a really terrible movie, then I usually think that like when I saw uh, Ready Player One, which I just hated, I immediately knew my headline was going to be this is Steven Spielberg's worst movie, which it was. And then everyone online yelled at me, but I stand by it. <laughs> but you did get a lot of people looking at that article. Yeah. See, yeah. it worked. <laughs> Hyperbolic yeah, I, statements, I, get, get reads. 
uh, I come to, unless it's for like for news articles and stuff, I'll do the headline first. But um, for reviews, I almost always do it at the end. I think it's because when I when I first got started writing, I would just write reviews on like my own blog, and I wouldn't have a headline. It would just be the name of the movie was the was the name of the blog post. So I never had to think about it um, in those early days of like uh, muscle memory, you know, writing reviews and stuff. So I just, I, yeah, I come to that at the end. So I think the lesson today, guys, is that we all take notes except for Jacob, and his writing is better than ours. So uh, maybe <laughs> there's not taking true. Notes. <laughs> That's not true. So we should stop taking notes, right? <laughs> okay, uh, that brings us to the end of today's podcast. We have too many people on this podcast uh, to go through the whole roster, but if you want to find more of all of our work, you can find it at slashfilm.com. Slash Film Daily, this podcast is published every weekday on iTunes, Google Play, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. If you have a question for the mailbag or you just have feedback, comments, concerns, you can send them to peter at slashfilm.com. And uh, please leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention the email on the air like we did with all of these emails today. And uh, please go to our iTunes page, write out a you know paragraph review, a five-star review, tell your friends, spread the word, and we'll see you on Monday.